evening everyone, I'm Tracy Noah from the Marion Library Service. Happy New Year and welcome back to our Library Through the Lens live webinar as part of our series of adult programs delivered differently. This evening, thanks to Fremantle Press, we welcome writer Alexander Thorpe all the way from Western Australia as he discusses his debut novel, Death Leaves the Station. Both an avid reader and a lifelong insomniac, Alexander first began using novels from the golden age of crime fiction as a means of self-medication. Far from putting him to sleep, they soon had him concocting plots of his own into the early hours. When not writing, Alexander can be found teaching English to international students. Please feel free at any time during the presentation to type questions you have for Alexander into the Q&A or chat feeds on your screen, and I'll ask these at the end of his talk. Now, please sit back, grab a cuppa or a glass of wine, and please welcome Alexander. All right. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you very much. Um, can you hear me now? Am I all loud and clear? We can hear you. No problem. Thanks, Alexander. Fantastic. Um, so I'd like to just quickly say thanks um, to Marianne Library and to Tracy for, for organising this, for having me. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's a, a lovely event to do. And I'm looking forward to there's a few other events um, that, that look really great as well in, in the series. So that's, that's excellent. Um, I'd also like to do a quick uh, acknowledgement um, of the traditional custodians of the land uh, over there, obviously in, in Adelaide, is far away from where I am. I'm in WA, but um, so I'd like to um, acknowledge the Ghana people um, who are the traditional custodians of the land that the library is on um, and pay respect to the elders uh, past, present and emerging. Uh, and also I'm right now in uh, down, down south of Perth in Margaret River. So that's on the traditional lands of the Wadundi Noongar people. Um, so I'd also like to pay my respects to um, to the elders of the Wadundi Noongar and the Wajuk Noongar, which is uh, the traditional owners of the people around Perth, where I live and write normally, um, especially on this, this week of the 26th of January, I think can be a, a very traumatic time because of things um, that Indigenous people have experienced in the past and continue to experience. Um, so I think it's, it's uh, important to, to uh, acknowledge that. Um, so, <clears throat> as uh, Tracy said, my name's Alex Thorpe, Alexander Thorpe. Um, I've written a book called Death Leaves a Station. It looks like this, only much, much bigger, because this is a card and I forgot to bring a copy of my book with me down south. So imagine that real book size, and that's what it looks like. Um, I haven't actually done one of these uh, presentations off-leash before. Normally it's a, um, a Q&A and I'll just kind of respond to things. So. Um, it's my first time being being let a little bit loose, um, so I'm just going to cover a bit of everything. And uh, in the Q and A's, you can you know, ask me, you know, anything uh, anything that piques your interest and you want to hear more about at the end. Um, give me a yell. So I'm just going to quickly talk about uh, my book and and me, who I am, the genre that I'm writing and why I like that. Um, also going to talk about it's a historical novel, so I'm going to talk about the sort of challenges, the good bits and the bad of writing historically. Um, the kind of process of, of what it's been like. This is my first novel, so getting that out there, the writing and the publishing process. Um, a couple of tips. People often ask for sort of tips um, for writing and um, just kind of my feelings on, on reading in general, I suppose. So here we go. <laughs> so uh, as I said, my book, Death Leaves a Station, it is, um, it's a cosy crime or a whodunit or a historical mystery. I kind of vary up, you know, what I, what I call it, but basically it's a, 
it's a it's a crime novel set in the past. <laughs> um, the setting is it's in 1927 um, in sort of regional Western Australia. So if you if you know WA north of Perth, you know you get a few hours north of Perth on the coast, you get to Geraldton, and around that area, there's lots of other places kind of where the the wheat belt and the uh, uh, mining areas, the gold fields sort of join. So we've got um, Mullawa and Mount Magnet and a lot of sort of smaller towns around there. Um, and the, the narrative kind of moves all around that area. The basic idea of the story is that um, there is an 18 year old girl called Mariana who lives on a remote station, a sheep station. And uh, one night she's out for a walk and she stumbles across a body. Uh, she goes back to tell you know, someone to get some help to, to call the police. But by the time they get back to it, the body's disappeared and no one knows who he is, how he got there, why he disappeared, how he was killed. These are all the mysteries. So instead of just a whodunit, you get a whodunit, where done it, why done it. It's, it's, it's value for money. Um, and as uh, Mariana sort of follows the investigation and gets caught up in the investigation, uh, they travel south, um, you know, away from the goldfields and wheat belt down towards Fremantle and Perth, which are, um, you know, very different in 1927. Um, and she learns a lot about herself. It's the first time she's kind of left the farm, so to speak. So she's kind of discovering the world as well. So there's a little bit of a coming of age in there as well um, to, to mix it up a bit. Um, a lot of people ask me why I write in this genre and why I wrote this story particularly. Um, this uh, setting was actually sort of partly inspired by my grandpa, uh, my dad's dad, who was born in 1926. So I set the I set the uh, book a bit earlier than the times that he experienced, um, set in 1927. But he um, got me to help him type out his memoirs a few years ago, about about a decade ago now. And um, he grew up all around that area. He moved over from Victoria to that area to stay with um, relatives, and he had all these bizarre stories um, about growing up in the area. A lot of them I don't think are true. I think he might have been exaggerating or, you know, lying actually about a lot of them. Uh, here's a story about catching an emu. It was supposed to be shooting an emu that was, you know, um, was in their field and scaring the livestock and he ran out of bullets. So he had to ride his horse alongside it and grab it by the neck, which I don't think is true. Um, but, you know, <laughs> Who's going who's gonna to tell? When you're typing out someone's memoirs, you're just going, uh-huh, okay, and you just type it out. Um, but he had all these fantastic stories about that area. You know, he was involved in in trying to trying some gold mining and he was involved in cray fishing or, like, you know, fishing for like what we call it. I think it's technically a Western rock lobster, but we call it crayfish. Um, and one of the things that surprised me was that, you know, I've spent a lot of time in, in country towns in Australia or a bit of time in country towns, and I think of it as being, as being quite conservative and quite... Um, stayed and quite white um and i thought you know going back to the 30s we would have it would have been even more so but um his stories were filled with you know like the guy who taught him to fish was was from hong kong um there were people in in uh, these small towns of you know a couple of hundred people and there were there were people from all around the mediterranean and the, the middle east and you know the afghan cameleers and um i think also after the first world war with a lot of men you know um injured or killed or uh, mentally struggling, um, women stepped forward to do so much more of the, the work um, in all areas as well. So I was imagining a lot of old white men in, in Akubras, I suppose, and um, I heard all these stories of just really, really diverse groups of people doing all sorts of stuff I wasn't expecting. So that was that made me sort of actually think about writing in that, in that area. 
Um, and later on, I got addicted to to crime fiction. I never I never used to write read crime, and I'm still not. I still only stick to a really specific type of crime. Um, but I when I was traveling overseas, which I did for a while, uh, my then partner, now wife, and I um, lived for a year in Mexico uh, and a year in uh, Georgia, the former Soviet Socialist Republic, not the uh, not the US state, and for a little bit of time in China as well, about six months in China. So we're traveling around for a while. It was a few years since I'd been home. And, um, <clears throat> you know, every day I was teaching English. That was my, my job uh, while I was traveling. And it's still what I do a lot in Australia as well. And I just found, you know, when you're teaching English, it's great. It's a, it's a beautiful way to, to uh, engage with people. It's a great job in a lot of ways. But it's also um, every day you're doing a lot of um, the same low-level stuff. You know, you're teaching people, hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Um, so I really, I really craved like ornate language. And uh, if you go back to sort of, you know, a lot of the... Um, a lot of the crime stuff, a lot of the golden age crime stuff written at the end of the 19th and the start of the 20th century, people get really, um, you know, they, they got really uh, over the top with their with their adjectives and their adverbs. And I kind of got, I just enjoyed at night getting lost in these, um, in this really ridiculous over the top English, you know, and, and the way that the language has changed is funny. You know, they're always, uh, we always make fun of the way they they use the word ejaculated to describe someone saying something quickly. You know, what's this? He ejaculated. And you go, <laughs> um, so I was having a lot of fun. Just I, I kind of got lost in reading all these old crime novels. And um, I thought I could do this, um, not in a sort of arrogant way, but I just thought, I, you know, I'd like to give it a shot. Um, I, I tried writing before fiction. I've, I've sort of always written. I've always loved writing and I've always um, written short stories and things like that. But um I had two attempts at novels under my belt and they both suffered from not being in any genre and just kind of being <clears throat> just really freewheeling and a bit sort of like um, trying to do everything at once, I suppose. No direction, no, um, no specific focus. And I thought what I need when I start writing or when I start talking, as you've probably seen, I'll just kind of get carried away and go everywhere. <clears throat> and people who read it would go, oh, I really like, you know, this and this, but I, it's just it's just too much or it's too unfocused or it's, I don't understand what the point is, um, which is fair. I look back at it now and I, I can reread those sometimes and go, oh, well, I feel a bit embarrassed to have submitted them, but I think that's part of the process. We'll talk about the writing process later. Um, so yeah, I thought, okay, I need something with a strong genre, a strong, strong conventions and style. And um, I've been reading so much Agatha Christie and so much um, John Dixon Carr and, and, um, you know, all of the, all of Sherlock Holmes, all the Arthur Conan Doyle stuff. And I thought, ah, I can do it. So I tried and it worked out all right. Um, so that was, that was basically my inspiration that sort of the, the setting from my grandpa's stories, the, the kind of, the, that great uh, genre uh, conventions from all the cozy crime. And I sort of put them together and I thought this will be interesting because they're all very British as well, you know, and I thought what would it be fun to take that very, very British crime thing and, um, and bring it to, you know, almost the outback, not technically the outback, but, you know, rural Australia. Um, and then Freo Press decided to uh, publish it, which is amazing. Um, and Freo Press have been wonderful. They uh, have got a lot of crime under their belts, and, and especially last year when I published 
there were four people publishing at the same time as me and also Alan Carter who just did a, a who had a sequel to uh, one of his previous books and it was called Doom Creek it was excellent um, and then two Daves Dave Warner and David Wish Wilson who um, they were all sort of a continuing series um, which which made me feel I felt like a newcomer in, in respect because I was I felt very sort of you know inexperienced but also it was great to have those people to talk to and to get ideas from and to, to you know understand um, understand what's happening it was great um, so me tell you about me <laughs> uh, as I mentioned before I, I've been writing for a long time but haven't really published much. I've, I've published a couple of travel articles and things like that. Um, I worked as a copywriter for a long time um, and I, I studied journalism at university actually. So I've always kind of done bits and pieces, but it's my first, first go at a novel. Um, <clears throat> as Tracy mentioned before, um, I, I just can't sleep. I just, <laughs> I've just been an insomniac forever, um, which can be great. Well, I like to see it as just more, more reading time, sometimes more writing time as well. Uh, when I think there's a certain there's a certain level of sleeplessness where you can operate on a writing level, but uh, when it gets too far, you know, when, you, when you've been awake for a couple of days and you start uh, writing, you'll you'll open the word document up again a few days later and just go, what was I, what? I don't think I was fully awake then. I think it's half asleep because you'll have you know characters who come out of nowhere and just change their names halfway through, and it's just it's a bit it's a bit of a mess. So um, I like to think of it as more reading time than writing time. Um, I, when I'm not writing, I love I travel, as I said before, sort of been moving around the, the globe before the, the pandemic, obviously. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just love experiencing different, um, different ways of life, I suppose, different places, uh, languages. Um, and I used to, uh, I'm very interested in music as well. I used to play music. Um, that's quite interesting comparing uh, the writing community to the music community because you know when you're playing in a band or you're playing music and you're trying to um you're trying to get some <clears throat> you're trying to get gigs or get people to listen to music it feels quite um it feels a little bit like high school and it feels like you're you know putting on an act trying to be cool and trying to um show everyone else how cool you are uh and people are very, you know, sort of drawn along genre lines. They'll go, oh, we play this sort of music, so we, I, don't, I don't want to listen to what you're doing. Um, but I found that people in the, maybe I've just been lucky, but the people who I speak to in um, the writing community are so, have been so open and um, so welcoming. And, you know, we all sort of love to, to, to share ideas and, and read in each other's things and, and um support each other. I, I found it a lot more sort of welcoming than the music scene, which is not an indictment of the music scene so much as it is um, just, um, I'm just really grateful to have found uh, so many wonderful writers in Australia who are very friendly and very uh, open, welcoming. Um, so speaking of, of different genres and things, I thought I'd talk a little bit about this genre and why I think it's fun and why I think it's important as well. So, as I said before, we call this, often people call it cosy crime. And if you think about Agatha Christie and <clears throat> Josephine Tay and Naya Marsh and things like that, obviously often someone gets killed. Often it starts with a murder, but there's usually not a lot of blood. There's not a lot of gore. There's not a lot of sexual violence. There's not a lot of, you know, uh, aggression or fear. It, it's, it's very sort of like there is a crime at the beginning. Maybe even it's just something getting stolen. And then from then on, it's all about the puzzle and it's all about people trying to, you know, 
work their way through who was where and why. So I think that that word cozy is quite interesting. It's often used disparagingly. A lot of people who are into hard-boiled crime or, you know, really like the uh, sort of high-octane uh, action stuff and, and, and thrillers, they'll often use cozy disparagingly. But I, I just love it. I love um, it. It does make me feel cozy. As I said, I was overseas before and sort of feeling far away from home and it just you just sort of sink into it. Um, you don't have to worry about you know getting sidelined with something something brutal and and, and horrifying. Um, there's actually a really good episode of a podcast I listen to called The Allusionist. Allusion with an with an A. Uh, if if you if you like podcasts, The Allusionist is great. It's all about language and words. Um, the presenter Helen Saltzman is great, um, and they have an episode called um, A Novel Remedy, and it was they they basically surveyed a bunch of people around the UK, because it's a British podcast, asking what people like to read normally and what they like to read when they're sick. And it was quite funny that whenever people are, you know, regardless of what people read normally when they're ill, when they're recovering from something they like to read, they all said Agatha Christie. Um, because there is something very comforting, very familiar, very um, cosy about, about it. Um, but... Having said that, I think there, there are a couple of exceptions, which are, first of all, within that, there's a lot of room for people to be a bit subversive. Like if you go through um, a lot of those books, especially as they get a bit later in the in the 20th century, um, you'll find a lot of people, you know, challenging social norms, especially, as I said before, the, the wars, you know, changing gender, gender roles and things like that. Um, you'll find a lot of uh, sort of little slide digs at at um, society and uh, you know veiled criticism th things like that. So I think that um, even though it's it's cozy and it sort of makes everyone feel comfortable, there's also a great it's also a good way to sort of um, you know um, unearth some things that people maybe don't usually talk about. <clears throat> but the other thing um, that I think is is really interesting or really important to think about. Um, is when we say it's cosy, it's cosy for a certain group of people. You know, you think, who is this cosy for? Because, again, I like to read Agatha Christie. I go back and I I, um, I think, oh, this is familiar. This is, there's no, you know, um, unwelcome surprises, et cetera. But um, every now and then you come across a, a racial slur, something that might have been more acceptable then or even wasn't acceptable then, but Agatha Christie used because she had some, um, you know, she she had some views that wouldn't wouldn't fly nowadays. Um, and one of her most famous books, um, and then there were none. Actually, originally had a racial slur in the in the title, um, which which people tend to forget. And there's a lot of sexism, and there's a lot of homophobia, and there's a lot of you know um, things that would ruin that cozy experience. I think for a, for a lot of people. So I think it's important to remember when we talk about cozy crime. You know, you think if you're if you're sort of relatively um, relatively straight and you're white and you're, you know, sort of living a what society considers a very normal life, there'll be nothing to shock you in there. But every now and then you come across something and you go, oh, God, that's very, you know, that's a really offensive thing or attitude. And it's, it's important to remember um, that, yeah, cosy doesn't mean cosy for everyone all the time, which is unfortunate. Um, having said that, I do like that um, a lot of the people who pioneered this genre were women. Um, so obviously Agatha Christie, we've mentioned a lot. 
Um, Josephine Tay, who's my favorite crime writer, was a Scottish woman who was very, very, um, you know, very widely regarded. You've got Naya Marsh. Um, there's just a huge amount of, of women who were just really successful. And I've heard people say, I don't have a lot of, you know, data to back this up, but I've heard to say that it was the first kind of genre where women really dominated and the first time in like literary, you know, society where, where women were really um, leading the way and, and, and outselling, consistently outselling men and things like that. So um, I think that's a really, it's a really good thing to remember. And if, you know, for someone like me, who, who is man, to try and kind of be respectful when I'm, when I'm, you know, um, working in this genre and thinking about uh, whose footsteps I'm in, you know, trying to remember that it is a, it's a genre that's been created by, by women largely. Um, there's actually an interesting prize, there's a literary prize that uh, another Australian author won, Jock Serong won a couple of years ago uh, for the first time, actually, the inaugural one is called the Staunch Prize. Um, and it's a UK literature prize for um, crime that doesn't feature women being harmed or any sexual violence or anything as a um as a plot point and i think that's really interesting because um so often now you know especially if we're looking at contemporary crime things that are set now um you know there's it, a lot of murder there's a lot of sexual assault there's a lot of domestic violence and things like that and um i think it's it is important to try and imagine um you know writing a writing female if you're a man writing female characters who aren't just there to get killed or beaten or whatever as a plot point um but um you know be to try and to try and uh not just reflect the you know the most horrifying things in society <laughs> um yeah and so that's something that, that's also great a lot of people think of crime and they think of you know uh, uh, sort of starting with a with a dead woman or whatever but um Again, these early 20th century crime novels often had, you know, an old uh, retired colonel getting murdered or something like that, which was a little bit more, um, you know, maybe a little bit less hard to, to endure. Um, so I'll talk about the historical side of things, I suppose. I mentioned that my book is set in 1927, um, which is before I was born, if you can believe it. Um, and as I said, it was just a year after my grandfather was born. So I didn't have a huge amount of, um, you know, firsthand stuff to, to come from. Um, luckily, I did have a lot of um, background information from my my grandfather's uh, memoirs. And, uh, you know, not, not a huge amount of stuff changed in the sort of 10 years between he was, when he was born and when I was, um, when he started remembering things. Um, but also Trove has been amazing. And, you know, if you use libraries, if you, if you um, are researching, doing anything like that, you will probably have come across Trove, the National Library of Australia's digitization project where they have everything, all the sort of newspapers and, and public records and everything um, archived and, and searchable online, which is amazing. Um, and it, it was, it, you know, in creating, in trying to write about 1927, um, it was a journey for me in terms of, you know, just thinking about how the world looked, everything, you know, you've got photos online, which is great from, from Trove, but also thinking about, you know, what kind of cars were on the road, um, what, telegraph wires and, and um, electricity, you know, how did how's the landscape changed? Um, so that's a, it was just a really interesting process, you know, aside from obviously doing it in order to, to get um, the book finished and get this make the story realistic. It was just an amazing thing to read all of this information about um, about how things used to be. And uh, I used to um, 
I used to just get lost reading the newspapers. <laughs> I, read, I read the newspapers from 1927 more than I read the newspapers from um, from 2017 or whenever it was that I started writing this. Um, so that was good and bad. Um, but it was amazing to see how many newspapers there had then because we've got, I mean, in WA now, we've just got one weekly newspaper and we have two weekend newspapers. Um, but back then there were just so many because, of course, you know, without the internet, without the... Um, without so many people having a telephone and so on, everything was, all the classifieds, all the information sharing was all done through the newspaper. So it was really, really amazing to uh, to look through and, and sort of uh, revisit that world, I suppose, or visit that world for the first time if you weren't around in 1927. Um, the other thing, uh, so that was, that was a big challenge, I suppose, getting everything right. Um, luckily, my, uh, the editor, so, so my, my publisher, I suppose, from uh, Priya Press, Georgia Richter, she um, she had a really good eye for detail and she was really good at checking. I mean, she was once, we, we were sharing information about you know, our edits going through and checking sentences and things. And she was checking, I'd mentioned the moon, I'd mentioned the moon being crescent, waning or something. And she went through and actually found, you know, a website where you could go and check what the moon looked like from different parts of the world at, at different uh, at different dates, and she was going, okay, 1927, you know, November the 14th, what was the moon like? And she was going, all right, you win this time. The moon, just by luck, it had been the right the right type of moon. So I did have a lot of help uh, fact-checking things and making things uh, making sure things were all good there. Um, and my proofreader, um, Marissa Wickramaniake, she was, she actually did her, um, her thesis, I can't remember if it was her honours thesis or her, her PhD, I'll have to check again, but um, on the history of the Fremantle area. So I had a lot of help from people who who knew a lot and could check. You know, I wrote everything first, obviously, and then I'd go through and just go, no, that's not true. That car didn't exist then. Or, you know, I tried. <laughs> I tried by myself, but it was great to have that uh, safety net of other people going through and saying, no. Nah. <laughs> um so that was that was a lot of fun, but also challenging writing historically. Um, the other thing that was hard about historical writing, of course, is the attitudes I've talked before about how it's, it's important to me to consider, you know, um, issues of race and gender and sexuality and things like that. And um, of course, you don't. I, I don't want to make characters who are bigoted or who say, you know, racist or sexist things. But then there's also the idea of trying not to whitewash, trying to not make it sound like everyone was, you know, uh, everyone was getting along and, and people were, uh, you know, white, you know, settler Australians were treating Indigenous people all, you know, hunky-dory. Um, so that was kind of a difficult line to walk because I didn't want to just <clears throat> make, you know, people say horrible things or do offensive things for no reason or just for the sake of realism, which I think people often do, especially, um, I, I always find... Um, in movies, um, you know, especially Tarantino is very sort of, you know, in this this kind of time, this kind of person would have used, you know, would have been homophobic or would have been uh, sexist or racist, and then he just really leans into it and has a lot of fun with people, you know, uh, being aggressive and offensive. And I, I didn't feel right doing that. But at the same time, I didn't feel right, again, whitewashing it all. Um, but there was a really interesting point made on a podcast, another podcast I listened to called Behind the Bastards by Robert Evans, which kind of looks at the history of, of uh, bastards, bad people, <laughs> of, um, of, you know, people who were 
leaders in in wars and and, and things like that. Lots of lots of um, interesting historical information. And come uh, two of the people he sort of focuses on the the bad deeds of were um, uh, Cecil Rhodes in you know Rhodesia and in in Southern Africa and the way that he sort of treated the um, the African population there and also um, King Leopold of Belgium. And in that podcast, when he was talking about these sort of harmful and, and dated ideas and, and the way that they were, you know, racist particularly, he, um, the podcast host, mentioned a lot of the people who disagreed with them. So he was saying, you know, like Cecil Rhodes was doing all this, you know, horrible race-based discrimination. But a lot of people back in the UK or who were working with him or in the parliament or whatever were against this. And there were a lot of people at the time, you know, in Australia, there were a lot of people who were against, um, you know, all of the various indignities that Indigenous people were subject to and all that so on. And he said it's an important thing to remember not to try and uh, exonerate, not to try and go, oh, look, you know, it's it's it wasn't the, the British, you know, colonialism wasn't so bad because there were people who were, you know, who were saying it's bad or the people who were objecting to it. Um, but he said it's important to acknowledge that if you're going to condemn the people who did bad things, if that makes sense. So saying, you know, if if everyone, if every single British person who um, went to Africa or went to Australia and, you know, dispossessed people of their land, if everyone was on the same page and said, oh, yeah, this is the right thing to do, it's great, then it's quite hard to judge any individual act. It's quite hard to say, look, you know, this person did a bad thing because their entire society was based around that. It was fine. But if you acknowledge that there were people around who were saying, this is not the way to do things, you know, this is not uh, an appropriate way to treat people or we should be better than this, then it makes it a lot, um, it makes it a lot easier to, to um, you know, view how bad the, the acts were in themselves. If you say, look, these people, um, you know, even people in their own time, not everyone agreed with this and lots of people were saying it's an inappropriate thing to do, but these um, people went and did it anyway. So <clears throat> I tried to use that a little bit in my book. I had people who were, um, who had racist, sexist, homophobic attitudes, and then I had people who were not, you know, who who didn't take that. I had a have a character who was a priest and who was, you know, very, or a former priest and very into, you know, um, treating everyone uh, as as a child of God or what have you. And I had again that character Mariana who has just left the farm for the first time, and so she's kind of a good vessel for, for being sort of like shocked at the treatment of, um, you know, other people of other races or um, people of diverse sexualities and so on. So that was a, a challenging thing to work with, but um, but I think uh, it's something important to, yeah, to a line that's important to try and walk, I suppose. Um, so the, the actual process of writing and publishing this, um, book I've mentioned that I did a lot of uh, research and so on um my it took me a couple of years to write this I was working full-time and uh, when I started writing it as I said I was I was overseas um and I was just kind of writing very um erratically <laughs> you know bits and pieces here I, I'd write a, quite a sizable chunk one night and then I wouldn't write write again for a few months and there'd be weeks where I'd be writing you know every day regularly um so it took me a while and I didn't show anyone for a long time. I didn't feel like I wasn't thinking, oh, this is a book. I'm going to write it and publish it. And people are going to love it. I just thought, I feel like I could do this. And 
you know, I was sort of doing it for myself, really. So I was, I was, I thought, you know, I'd like to try this. I'd like to see if I can do it. And if I'm happy with it when it's done, then I'll, you know, show it to some other people and see what they think. So I took a couple of years to do the first draft, thought about it, um, went back through it a few times and changed a few little things. And then I showed it to my wife, my family, and, you know, some friends. I didn't really know anyone who else who'd done any sort of creative writing. I knew I've got friends who are journalists and things like that, but no one else I know who'd written this sort of thing. So, um, you know, everyone said it was great. Oh, it's nice. It's good. But again, there were people who I loved and who loved me. So I was sort of like thinking if I, um, you know, if it was bad, they wouldn't tell me. You know, they'd go, oh, it's great sort of thing. So eventually I plucked up the courage and I submitted it. Fremantle Press was actually the first place I submitted it. Um, and they had an online submittable thing. So I, I turned it in and I said, you know, they said they'd get back to you in uh, eight weeks. And they didn't. <laughs> uh, I sort of forgot about it. And after about 10 or 11 weeks, I uh, got a call on the way to work and um, Georgia was saying that she wanted to publish it and I nearly crashed my car. Um, but I think I was really lucky in that respect because in my little um, forward, I'd mentioned that I liked Josephine Tay, who I mentioned earlier, the Scottish mystery writer. And um, they happened to be looking for crime. And um, Georgia, the publisher, was a fan of Josephine Tay as well. So I think that sort of caught her attention. Um, and then she read it um, and she, she enjoyed it, which was great. Um, after that point, after actually getting it, you know, accepted um we had the proofreading and we had the um you know sort of refining process and i didn't actually change too much um mainly technical changes um i have a very rolling style of writing i suppose i have long big long sentences and lots of semicolons and lots of um, parentheses and things like that so um i think marissa the proofreader took out about she must have taken about about a hundred uh, semicolons and just gone. Just finish the sentence and start a new one. Um, so that was that was a, a part of it. And I read it again, you know, with her revisions, and I think, yeah, I could see this. I can see how this is easier to, <laughs> to read. Um, but other than that, I didn't make any major changes um, apart from one scene. There was one scene where. Um, I don't want to give away too much, but basically it was just people uh, reacting to a, a shocking event and um, the way that one character reacted was, we thought was maybe not in character with the rest of their actions. You know, the rest, through the rest of the book, they've been one way and then they react to this this news in a, in a, in a very different way. Um, and, you know, so um, the proofreader actually said, you know, this one doesn't quite gel with me. And I went back and read it again. I hadn't actually sort of read the whole story this, since I finished it like a year or two earlier. And I went, oh yeah, no, looking at this again, I can see how that's a bit off. I think I might've just waited, you know, waited a few months between writing sessions and just kind of forgotten, you know, lost my uh, my flow a little bit and forgotten how that was. So I changed that, but yeah, really um, all my changes were, were sort of mostly, mostly just sort of technical and making everything flow a little bit better. Um, and it's it's funny being the first time you show someone else your writing. I mean, I'm, you know, being a teacher and a copywriter, I get feedback on stuff all the time. But when it's something that's sort of creative, it feels very, you're like, oh, be nice to me. People would, would say, oh, I don't really like this, you know, sentence or something needs to change in this one. And I'd go, oh, God, I have to sort of like 
stop and, and just sort of take a breath for a second and be like, don't, <laughs> don't cry or say like, you know, or like snap at them to sort of stop and think and go, oh yeah, no, that's a good point. Or sometimes, you know, you get to the point where you say, actually, there are a couple of changes they suggested. And I said, actually, I think it works better the original way. And that was actually quite hard for me to do. I'm not very good at confrontation or, you know, <laughs> um, at, uh, I suppose, uh, arguing with people or anything. So it was quite hard for me to say, I think it should stay this way, but uh, it was fine. <laughs> I, was, I was very scared about doing it. But when, as soon as I, I said that, they're like, yeah, that, that's fine. It doesn't really matter. It's just a suggestion. Um, so yeah, that was the, the writing process after that. Um, it took it between when they sort of accepted it and when it got put out was about a year, um, you know, for all the printing. I was very excited to see my, uh, the cover for the first time. Every, every time I see the book anywhere, it, it feels unreal. It still feels a bit crazy. Um, it's now been made into an audio book. There's a, there's a British um, company who made it into an audio book that's available on, on Audible and, and Amazon. Um, and that was very exciting as well. Um, now it's out there in the world and I just kind of, you know, <laughs> I kind of just uh, have to wait and see how it goes. Um, so people have asked me the last couple of Q&A um, sessions I've done and things, people have asked me for writing tips. And I, I found that a little bit, um, I find it kind of funny because, as I said, this is my first book. I don't have a lot of, you know accumulated wisdom to give but then I thought about tips I'd got from other people and I thought it's really just you know everything is different for for everyone things work for one person and not for another so I can understand you know wanting everyone I talk to I ask them about how they write and what they do and I you know some things I think oh maybe I'll give that a shot and some things I think oh you know that's not gonna work for me um but my biggest tip I think is what anyone says which is just read a lot but also read in just read widely like I think uh just reading in one genre or just reading one, um, even reading people from just, just one country or just one era, whatever can be really um, stifling. So I think it's really important to read. Um, try and read people from other countries, try and read people in translation, try and read fiction and nonfiction, all sorts of genres. Um, I've always found it quite funny that like, again, sort of coming from, from the world of music as well, like the idea that there's, that, that, that there are literature, books that are literature that don't have a genre. Like people often sort of say, you know, oh, this is literature and this is genre fiction. And it's just so weird. Like imagine saying to someone, you know, what kind of music do you listen to? And they're just going, no, it's just music. It's not jazz. It's not, it's not uh, punk. It's not rock. It's just music. I don't listen to genre music. It'd be a very weird thing to do. Um, anyway, so yeah, read very widely. Um, on a technical level, one thing I found really um, helpful I'm sure everyone's heard the advice before to murder your darlings or kill your darlings. Just, you know, be, don't be afraid to sort of cut things out that um, that you think you've really good. You're like, oh, I worked really hard on this passage. It's beautifully written. I want to keep it in there, but it doesn't work with the rest of the the uh, plot. And you spend ages trying to massage it in or trying to work it in somewhere else. <clears throat> and for ages, when I started, when I first started writing, I would do that and I would mess around for, for a long time trying to sort of um, not not cut anything out or to make sure I saved something if I did cut it out in case I wanted it later. So what I do now, um, whether I'm using, you know, like a word processor or whether I'm using Google Docs, which I often do on, on my um, Chromebook, is every day or every time I sit down to write, I just save my document as a copy. So, you know, and with that day's date. So I'll open up the one from yesterday, save it with today's date. That way, if I, I can just cut stuff out 
or I can change anything. And I know that if I need to find it again, it's in the previous day's document and the one before that and the one before that. And, you know, if you accidentally delete things, if you mess things around too much and you go, hang on, how was it before? You just go back to the previous one. And it, for me, that makes my mind just a lot lighter. I just think I can come back to this later, it's fine. So that'd be my second tip, do a new doc each day or a new document each um, time you sit down to write. Read aloud, number three, I love audiobooks. I love, actually probably more than audiobooks. I love uh, like audio dramas, you know, like uh, radio plays and things like that. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio plays. I used to uh, get out from my local library on cassette when I was a kid and I used to listen to them every night. Taped, I used the little double, don't tell anyone. I used the double cassette thing to, you know, tape them all onto my own ones. <laughs> Um, and listen to them every night. Um, so to me, when I write, I hear it in people's voices in my head. I, I, I think a lot of books are better, you know, read aloud. So when I have written something, I'll often go back and read it to myself aloud, even just under my breath and think, does this, does this sound right? Does this flow? And again, that, that semicolon thing, having those hundreds of semicolons, if you read it aloud, you do realize uh, this is not maybe the best way to do things. <laughs> um, Again, another sort of physical sort of tip, just try different places and setups, you know, try writing on a laptop, on a desktop, writing by hand, uh, morning, night, see what works for you. Sometimes people like lots of different things. Sometimes people like to have things exactly the same each time. Um, it, it changes, I suppose. So just don't lock yourself into any one, one thing. Um, and I've also found setting goals helps, um, you know, a, a word count or a number of pages, or even just a section, just without thinking of the length, just go, okay, I want to get to the, in my mind, I know that, you know, what's going to happen in this scene, in this chapter, they're going to, uh, you know, go and interrogate this person or go and, and have a discussion with this person. So I'll get that conversation done by the end of the week or the end of the day or whatever. Um, of course, with that comes being forgiving with yourself when you don't. <laughs> because something else comes up and, you know, or it just, it's just hard for you. You have to also be willing to let it go, which can be quite hard. Go, oh, I said I'd have this done by the end of the day and I can't do it. You just have to sort of, it's okay. There'll always be more time. Um, so I'm sort of nearly done with what I wanted to say. I suppose the last thing before we do a Q&A that I'd, I'd like to talk about is just reading in general, um, why I think reading is important, why I think libraries are important. Um, now, <laughs> more than ever, um, I find reading very, very, um, it's just essential for mental health, to be honest. Um, I've talked, I've talked a bit about being uh, an insomniac before. Um, I've also got anxiety um, and managing anxiety. You know, there's always the tips for exercise and, and sleep and so on, all the things you're supposed to do to, to manage anxiety. But I find reading um, just helps so much. It's just something to, a lot of people can meditate or can take their mind off things, you know, um, naturally without much effort. Um, I can't, I find that I really need uh, something external like a book to, to, uh, to help me do that. Um, and especially when you've got your phone with all the distractions, um, you know, every time you get a notification on your phone, well, I do anyway, I get sucked into Twitter or Instagram or something like that. And it's, you know, you're comparing yourself to other people and you're, trying to keep up with news and all this sort of stuff and it gets quite stressful. So um, reading reading a book can be so, so helpful in that respect. Um, but also I think it's just a great way to foster empathy. You know, the closest, I always think of it as the closest thing to getting inside someone else's head. 
um, and understanding, you know, another person's world is, is reading a book from their point of view. And there's so much I've learned from reading books, you know, biographies and autobiographies written by people, but also just fiction from other countries, other points of view, you know, um, trying to learn what it's like to, to, to live in someone else's skin. I think uh, a book is so important in that respect. And I think that's something we need now more than ever. You know, we've seen a lot of um, growth in sort of extremism and othering and all this sort of stuff lately. And I think if everyone was reading a little bit more and could sort of um, spend more time inside the, the skin of someone else, they would uh, just, you know, respect, <laughs> respect each other a little bit more. And of course, libraries um, play a massive role in that. Like, it's a lot of people don't have access to to a lot of books, or they might only sort of limit themselves to a, a specific selection of books. But libraries and events like this um, force people out of their comfort zones, or they suggest things that might not have other might not otherwise have um, you know uh, have, have come into their lives or been recommended to them. So I think that's just a hugely important uh, thing to 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 support and to um encourage now more than ever so um yeah again i think that's that's basically everything i wanted to uh to talk about in regards uh, me and my my book and so on um so tracy have you got any um any uh questions lined up for me yet <laughs> Thank you, Alexander. And Will said, yes, we love libraries. Uh, they are a great place for people to find anything and everything. And not just books, too. We do have everything in the libraries. Um, just quickly before we do move to some comments and questions. Now, I just want to know what makes you think that your grandfather chasing an emu on a horse is <clears throat> a lie. Because, you know, we see that happen all the time over here in South Australia. It was the way he told it. He... <laughs> He, there were things that <laughs> he told it in a very uh, cavalier way. So he said that he was, you know, like charging towards it. And first of all, he was supposed to be, I, I did the maths on this and he was supposed to be about 12, which I, mm, I took issue with. And uh, <laughs> certainly so, and, and he had a gun, which I guess, you know, giving a 12 year old a gun, I suppose in the forties wasn't such a weird thing, but um or in the late 30s um but yeah he said that he cornered it and 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 uh chased up to it he managed to you know have the be steering the horse with one hand grab the emu with the other hand and he then i i think he was saying he threw it over over the fence or something it was it was all highly highly improbable um but it wasn't wholly unlike him to be uh, exaggerating that so i don't know it might have been someone else who did it and he was just claiming it or it might have just been you know something he invented or it might have really happened that i'm just being i'm horribly maligning him but you know no it's a beautiful story speaking of the cozy the cozy uh crime genre we seem to have in our libraries particularly at the moment there seems to be this um craze for cozy cat crime have you seen any of those or read any of the cozy cat crime no no i haven't uh it doesn't surprise me that that would be popular and people love people love cats (laughs) People love. Yeah, it's a very strange I, one. Cozy crime's kind of endured as well. I mean, we always talk about the you know the early twentieth century, but you've got Midsummer Murders and you've got all of the uh, all of the sort of TV serials that have that have kept going on, and um, you know all the Australian writers who've who've been you know you've got Miss Fisher and um, Kerry Greenwood's stuff, and you've got um, 
uh, what's his face? The uh, Roly, who am I thinking of? Uh, Solari Gentil, who does the um, her, her series as well. So I, th- I think it's something that just it will always be around. It's it's a great uh, it's a great genre. <laughs> And a good thing with your book, actually, on readings.com.au, which is the um, was the Australian Book Retailer of the Year 2020, when you look at recommended cosy crime mysteries, you're top of the list there, Alexander. Oh, really? Awesome. Yeah, above Kerry Greenwood. So there you go. Something to be proud of. That's exciting. Now, we'll just move on to some of the comments and questions from our listeners. So uh, Julie says that she's written a biographical fiction about her father, who was a gun shearer in the 1940s. And and in his memoirs, he talks about, now I hope I'm going to pronounce this right, Malewa, Malewa and Mount Magnet. She's never been beyond Perth in WA, so to hear you talk about those places is surreal and exciting and she can't wait to read your novel. Very exciting. Um, do you know what? To be honest, I've not. It's it's uh, Mullawar, as they, they usually say. They have the the A at the end is a bit of an, an or sound Mullawar. Um, I've only been there once. I, a lot of these places that Grandpa lived, um, I didn't grow up there. I grew up in in Perth. Um, I spent a lot of time sort of uh, in Narragin in the Wheatbelt, where my mum's family's from. But um, I actually didn't go to these places a huge amount. I went up there once. Uh, I've, I've been through there once, and I've been to Geraldton a couple of times. But um, I was speaking to people and I didn't think it was that much of a problem because things had changed so much. You know, I was, I was thinking like, what's, you know, it's the same as I'm, I'm writing, I live in Frio, I grew up in Frio and I was writing about Frio in the 19, you know, my characters go to Frio in 1927. And it's just, it's almost unrecognisable, you know, how, thing, how different things are. So I thought, well, if I have to do that much research to write about my own <laughs> you know the streets I live on uh in the in the 20s then it's probably not going to make that much difference how well I know Malawa and you know as long as I'm familiar vaguely with that that area and that sort of climate and stuff um so yeah I um I I feel like you shouldn't let that limit you (laughs) too much but also go up and visit it's a beautiful area of the world Dongara especially I, I love I found a really good it's a beautiful uh, town with massive Morton Bay figs in the in the centre of town and it's just, it's really nice. Excellent. And I'll just give Julie, who asked that question, a quick plug because she's actually talking about her book that she mentioned there, Harry, in our libraries at a Book Talk Tuesday in April. So have a look out for that one. Fantastic. Um, Paula wants to know who is your favourite writer and your favourite book? Um, sorry, I'm just writing Harry down, Julie. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I don't really have one. Um, as I said before, uh, Josephine Tay is my favourite um, mystery writer um, because she does stuff that is so, you know, it's really, really different. Um, she she has one book where everything is a the, the main detective's in, in a hospital bed. He's broken his legs and everything is done through people um, reading... Uh, uh, you know, reading things people bring him and sort of trying to solve a historical mystery and things like that, where it's just it's just really sort of out of left field compared to the quite formulaic stuff that other people do, which I, I love the formula, but it's also great to see her play around with it. Um, so that's a historical... Um, I'll just write and Josephine T-E-Y. Um, so Josephine Tay is my favourite his um, mystery author, but um, in general, probably Douglas Adams. I do. I really love the Hitchhiker's Guide series. Just he's just has such a fun 
uh, attitude to, towards English and the world had, I suppose I should say. Um, and uh, yeah, Hitchhikers was great. And so was all the, the Dirt Gently books that he did. And um, he did a, a great sort of nature series as well, Last Chance to See non-fiction stuff. So Douglas Adams is a big one. But also um, someone who kind of bridges things, there's a um, an author who is from... Um, from Abkhazia, so I guess it was part of the USSR at the time, but now it's sort of um, breakaway part of Georgia in the in the Caucasus. Um, and he's called Fazl Iskander. Um, I'll write that one down, Fazl Iskander. Um, and he writes just a range of stuff, um, but it's it's almost like magic realism. I, I I do. I've always sort of loved magic realism. I've loved anything that's sort of over the top. Um, so Isabel Allende and things like that as well. Um, but yeah, this kind of weird sort of blend of magic realism, but also it's a little bit you know it's from the Soviet Union, so it's it's a bit um, influenced by that Russian sort of tradition of um, you know very romantic things with duels and stuff like that. Uh, duels as in fights, not not. Um, not diamonds. Um, yeah, and I, I find the things that he does really, really amazing. Uh, and one more I'll put in there is uh, Boris Akunin, who is another, he's another Russian writer, a Georgian Russian writer, but he um, has been translated into English. He does a lot of um, mystery novels as well. They, he has a series um, called Sister Pelagia, which is um, about a, a nun who solves crimes in the in, in Russia in the sort of 20th century, which is which is really, again, it's just a really interesting take on the genre, I find. Awesome. Um, Chloe says, in a way, do you wish you didn't set the book in the 1920s so that you wouldn't be bound to the facts and research? Um, no. Again, I... I need I need to be bound. <laughs> I need I need some guidance. Um, if I didn't have that, I would be getting too imaginative. Well, not too imaginative, too too um, loose and <laughs> too um, all over the shop. You know, with the possibilities, uh, it's good to have. Well, and also just on a um, you know in a mystery sense, like I love the, the actual you know the characters. It's a, it's a coming of age novel. There there are characters. There's a lot of interplay, of course, emotionally and um, socially. But the the core of it is a puzzle. It's like a crossword puzzle. You need you need to have the 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 question of how the crime was done and how it all works. And it's a lot easier to do that in the past. Now, when everyone's got GPS um, devices on their phone, you know, GPS trackers on their phones, and everyone's uh, logged into everything all the time, and there's so much data around. I find that a lot of crime novels now. <clears throat> either have to get really technical and talk about, you know, exactly how this was hacked and this data was used and this was this subterfuge was done, or they have to come up with really um, convoluted scenarios to do away with that. You know, they have people who have um, left their house in the middle of the night because there was a fire and they didn't take the phone with them and they didn't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all the CCTV, all of the Wi-Fi, yeah, I, it makes it a lot easier <laughs> to be in the past, in this genre anyway. So, no, I'm, I'm quite glad. I feel good about that, about being in the 20s. <laughs> kind of suits that genre, that uh, era too, I think, that kind of yeah. uh, genre, doesn't it? Um, Evelyn would like to know, how many words is your first novel and have you read any P.D. James? I did, yeah. I read P.D. James after I finished this book, actually. I got down here, actually, in Margaret River. I was down here um, in the, at the uh, secondhand book exchange and I got a, a P.D. James one, which I 
I did. I really liked um, a bit later than the, the time that I'm usually uh, reading and writing in. But um, I, I thought it was, um, yeah, a, a, again, a really good take on it. Um, I don't know. I can't remember how long it is. It's not very long. It's not a hugely long novel. It's about 200 pages. Um, so it was, I think it was between 65 and 75,000 words. It wasn't, it wasn't a huge one. Um, so yeah, a lot of people actually re do read it and go, oh, that was actually quick. It was a quick read. It wasn't, wasn't a huge one. Um, which the next one I'm going to sort of flesh out a little bit more, but I guess I didn't, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't, uh, I, I was feeling a bit of a rush to, to just like get to the story. I was going, oh, I'm getting caught up in the actual, uh, story. I'd like to flesh the next one out a little bit and have a bit more detail and maybe some, a few more red herrings and things. Awesome. Um, Julie also commented that, thank you for your honesty. She says she's never heard reading books suggested for anxiety, but the way you've explained it, it seems like a ridiculously obvious way to manage it. Thank you. And also, do you have a second book planned? Um, yes. Thank, well, thank you for that. First of all, um, yeah, no, I, think it's, I think it's important to be honest about, about anxiety and depression and things, I mean, especially now. I think a lot of people, you know, feel... Uh, feel like they can't talk about it, feel like it's too personal, which I, I absolutely understand, but um, I actually find it helps me to talk about it. So it's something I like to, to do. Um, the next book, uh, yeah, I'm working on another one. I'm working on one that is not sort of a direct sequel, but it has one of the characters from this book in it and it's set just a couple of years after. Um, so it's similar to period, obviously similar, similar vibe. Um, I'm going to try and sort of get a get a series going so the, the character who sort of functions not actually a detective but the one who functions as like an amateur detective um in this book is the the friar or the, the mendicant uh, he gets referred to he's a sort of a former priest who kind of wanders around and um he doesn't really his his sort of ability to solve crimes really is just he, that he knows people he spent a lot of time hearing confession and uh and and he is originally from sort of like uh, singapore and things like that so he's, he's been around the world and that's his sort of um his strength so he's going to be sort of the, the character who sort of goes through all the, the novels as as the sort of uh yeah as the amateur detective and the amateur sleuth who solves things and um keeping him in the second one it's as i said it's a bit longer it's going to be a lock a locked room uh, novel because in in going through all these um, these whodunits and, and cozy crimes, I, I found a lot of really great locked room puzzles. Um, and it's set south in the south of WA this time, down in Cochinup, which is getting close to the south coast, close to Albany and things like that. Well, that sounds awesome. We can't wait to hear about that one. And just talking about characters, this is the last question. So out of all the characters that you have written about uh, in this book, which one do you feel you relate to the most, if any? Um, yeah, good question. Um, I feel like I relate to all of them in the sense that they're all, they all have a bit of me in them because I think ultimately that's what's going to happen. Um, when you're when you're writing, you're a, you're a human being, and your experiences are the way you view the world is, is, is you know 
unique to you, I suppose. Um, so even though I've got characters in here who are, you know, young women, old men, um, people of all sizes and shapes, there's always going to be a bit of me in them, um, especially the ones that, <laughs> especially the bad ones. Uh, the the characters who I send up are often very me as well. Um, good question. I suppose, I suppose Mariana is... I, I relate to her a lot because she's this is the sort of the young woman who's sort of leaving the, the farm for the first time. Um, as I said, I'm from Fremantle. I'm from town as opposed to the country, but I do feel, for some reason, I just always feel out of place. I feel every time I go, you know, even if it's somewhere I've, I've been, this is the place I've worked for six years or the you know place I've lived for, for 20 years, I, I always just feel a little bit like I'm seeing it from, like I'm walking there for the first time, just going, "What are all these people doing here?" <laughs> so it's always feel a little bit, a little bit out of place. So I, I suppose I, um, I relate to that in uh, in in Mariana's character. Well, thank you so much, Alexander. We've come to the end of uh, your talk this evening, and there's no more questions, but there are lots of comments there about how much everybody's enjoyed listening to you, you this evening. Um, and, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you about uh, your novel, and we do hope that you will come back and join us um, on Library Through the Lens or travel over to Adelaide and join us in person when your next book is published. Yes, yeah, I, hope so. I hope it's uh, possible, a, a bit easier to, to travel at, uh, than it is at the moment between states and things, yeah. It'll be great. Yeah, be awesome. Well, thanks again. And uh, Alexander's book can be purchased directly from the publisher, uh, Fremantle Press, at www.fremantlepress.com.au. And please uh, follow the Marion Library's Facebook page, the City of Marion website, and check your inbox to be kept up to date on all of the upcoming Library Through the Lens presentations and workshops. And if you haven't already registered, please join us on Thursday, the 11th of February, as we welcome fellow Fremantle Press author Stella Budricus as she talks about her book the uh, about the Alice Mitchell trial that gripped the nation the Edward Street baby farm so that's sure to be um, a good a good evening so we hope you will join us then and once again thank you Alexander thank you thanks everyone for tuning in it's wonderful thanks good night everyone